Hello everyone! As you know, we're currently between seasons, but as I mentioned in our season finale, I was recently on the Men With Chests podcast. Uh, it's hosted by Joseph Weigel, and he's been going through the abolition of man bit by bit. And he had me on the show to introduce his listeners to The Great Divorce, and also the Byzantine Catholic Church. So we, we, co we covered a lot of stuff, but I thought I would just share it on the feed uh, to give you something to listen to while you are waiting with bated breath for season seven. I also just wanted to remind everyone that C.S. Lewis Reading Day is coming up, uh, and so please get your favorite Lewis quotations ready to share on social media. And finally, we are soon going to be having a watch party for the movie Surprised by Oxford, which is based on the book Surprised by Oxford by Carolyn Webber, where she talks about what happened to her when she came to Oxford and encountered the city, and also a certain Inklings author that we all know and love. So we're going to have a watch party for all of our Patreon supporters. So it will be free to anyone who is supporting us at any level. And so please make sure you check Patreon for details of that. Meanwhile, enjoy. This is Men With Chest, the podcast that pursues objective truth, goodness, and beauty, where we go back to the great books that made the West and give warning to the fate that awaits mankind should we not cultivate virtue. Welcome to Men With Chest. Today we have a special guest. We have David Bates, who is the co-host and the guy who runs Pints with Jack, one of the original C.S. Lewis podcasts. So why don't we start with that, David? Why is it called Pints with Jack first? Because <laughs> most people, you know, they're not going to know who Jack is. And then mm -hmm. how did you come up with the uh, podcast idea and just a little bit of the background there? Sure thing. Sure thing. Well, it's great to be here. Great to meet you finally. Uh, where did all this come from? So... What happened was in 2017, I was at a party, and as is wont to happen at parties, or at least the ones I go to, you end up talking about C.S. Lewis. And that was where I met one of my future co-hosts, Matt. It turned out that he really loved C.S. Lewis as well. And I had been saying for an age that I wanted to start a book club where I could talk about C.S. Lewis and dig into his works more. I grew up on Narnia and discovered all of his other works as an adult, and I had started working through them. I've been really enjoying them, but I thought that there was more that could be got out of them if I had a chance to talk with people about it. And so Matt and I, we started meeting up over a beer or coffee to talk about Lewis's works. And I advertised it on Facebook and other people started turning up. And so we had a local reading group. And we also had people reaching out to us because they'd seen my Facebook message asking if they could Skype in, you know, could we could we get them into the meeting virtually? And that seemed like a logistical nightmare. So I said no. But I suggested to Matt that we start a podcast instead, because that would allow people outside of our city, outside of the state to uh, be part of our virtual community. And it also meant that we'd have more time, because we'd been working through mere Christianity with the group. And we had done it over just handful of sessions and it just seemed wrong trying to get through mere Christianity in four sessions and I wanted to go chapter by chapter so we started a podcast it was initially called The Eagle and Child named after the pub where the Inklings would meet on Tuesday mornings and we did our first season on mere Christianity and we hadn't really thought much ahead as to whether or not this was really going to be a thing if this was going to be something we'd be doing regularly 
And at the end of the first season, we decided that we wanted to carry on. And so we then set about getting a domain, a website, and all of this other stuff. And uh, we couldn't get a good domain for the eagle and child. So we ended up renaming the podcast to Pints with Jack. So since we've previously been named after one of his favorite pubs, hopefully that clears up why we would have Pints. And Jack, because that was Lewis's nickname. Since about the age of four, he called himself Jack and his friends called him Jack. So whereas Lewis himself would go into the Eagle and Child on Tuesday mornings and drink with some of the Inklings and his friends and then meet together on Thursdays uh, over uh, a big pot of tea to read manuscripts to each other, we have our podcast come out on Tuesday mornings and we do interviews with scholars and guests on Thursdays just trying to imitate the sort of thing that Lewis was doing, having engaging conversations about topics that matter. And the primary topic that matters to us is C.S. Lewis. So we work through his works slowly, not as slow as you. Uh, you're, going th- you're going through in real detail, but that's the abolition of man. So that really needs to be done. Uh, but we, we go through his works slowly, a chapter or two at a time. And then we talk to guests who have an interest in a particular field of study within Lewis studies. Very cool. Yeah, it was a was it a dog that was named Jackie? Is that the story? Jackie. Jackie. Okay. I don't mm-hmm. know how accurate that story actually is, but I I remember coming across that, and uh, then the dog died, and then he forever after that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that an accurate story, or is that just kind of? It seems very well accepted. I have heard a few people that are questioning that narrative specifically. Yeah. But it, it certainly seems very much accepted by the, the broader Lewis community. So uh, I'm not going to pick a fight about that. <laughs> Regardless, uh, who wants to be called Clive? <laughs> well, see, the, the voyage of the Dawn Treader opens with, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved <laughs> yeah. it. I think this is one of just many examples within Lewis's work of his autobiographical tendency, because I think you could equally have said there once was a boy named Clive Staples Lewis, and he almost yeah. deserved it. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm with you there. Well, in, in honor of Pints with Jack, I have a real... Boddington's. Oh, I, I'm, I'm proud of you. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Boddington's is easily one of my favorite beers. Yeah, I actually, I had never even heard of, it's called, at least in the States, it's usually called cask ale. Mm-hmm. And it's just the traditional, you know, ale where they have that pull that mm-hmm. they have to pull it out with so it doesn't have that, you know, force behind it. And I actually had it years ago at just some random place in northern Michigan, actually. And I was like, this is really good <laughs> stuff. I it, So in honor of Pints with Jack, this, and this is a real pint too, you know, none, mm-hmm. none of this nonsense. One pint. Yeah. <laughs> silk in a glass but you're yeah. unlike uh, myself you're not drinking it out of a pints with jack glass so i'm gonna have to send you one so well, it will I, taste I will at least scientifically 20 to 25 percent better than normal yeah and it even says on the can pour it into a glass <laughs> i just don't have one right here <laughs> all right well david uh one thing i was uh, pretty interested in just with listening to your podcast and being uh, myself somebody from the states and pretty unfamiliar with Byzantine Catholicism. You know, I'm very familiar with Roman Catholicism, but that Byzantine part, uh, you know, at least in uh, my growing up, I was kind of under the impression of three main branches of Christianity. We had Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, and then Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. And so just kind of out of initially my own curiosity, where does 
Byzantine Catholicism fit into that three, uh, or is that three inaccurate? <laughs> it's not inaccurate. It is a little simplistic. The story gets much more complicated for each of those branches. Yeah. But the way I typically explain Byzantine Catholicism is to go back to the resurrection of Christ and the Great Commission and seeing that worked out in the book of Acts. Jesus says, go to all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded to you. And in the book of Acts, we see how that happens. It starts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then it goes to the ends of the earth. And as we then start digging into church history outside of the Bible, we see that there were various centers of Christianity. So in the book of Acts, you see that Antioch is really important. That's where Paul begins his missionary journeys. Uh, Rome obviously has significance because that's where he ends up. Jerusalem, this is where the faith began. And over, over time, there were other centers such as Alexandria and Constantinople uh, once uh, Constantine comes to power uh, and moves the capital. So you have these big centers of Christianity, these hubs of Christian activity. And what happens is that each of these areas take on a particular flavor of the faith. It's still the same Christian faith that's spread by the apostles, but it's, it's necessarily um, uh, ad adapts slightly to the culture and the, the, the nomenclature, the language that is used to, uh, to worship, to explain the faith, they take on a sort of a regional quality as, as the apostles and as the bishops teach their people. Uh, and so this is really where you get the different rites of the church. And so um, if you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 1203, you'll read all about rites and churches. And rites, and this is a very basic definition, it's a little bit more subtle than this, but it's, it's basically how somebody worships and everything that goes along with that. And so in church history, you see very particular rites develop and then being adopted by the, the, the different regional churches. And so a lot of people think of Catholicism as monolithic. It's actually not. Catholicism is a communion of churches who are all in union with each other through the Bishop of Rome. And uh, Byzantine Catholicism is just one of those. Um, and so if you ever go to a Byzantine Catholic church, they are fully Catholic. You'll very often see a picture of the Pope in the narthex, in the foyer. And whenever I would bring my Latin Rite friends to divine liturgy with me, I would always point out the picture of the Pope just so they, they knew that this was really Catholic. Because usually at some point during the liturgy, they would say, are you sure this is Catholic? Or I, we'd be going up for communion and they would say, are you sure I can receive? And I was like, yep, no, fully Catholic. Things just look yeah. a little bit different. And uh, I already actually showed one of them. We don't talk about mass because when Catholics talk about mass, it comes from the Latin, ite missa est, the final line of the Latin rite mass, go you are sent. And since these other rites didn't use Latin, they the name didn't attach to it. Yeah. So if you know an Eastern rite Catholic, a Byzantine Catholic, a Greek Catholic, these are, these are names which are roughly interchangeable. They all talk about divine liturgy. This is what you go to on a Sunday, divine liturgy. And if you go to a, an Eastern Rite parish, you'll often see that there are domes rather than spires. In the West, a spire is meant to point you upward, heavenward. Whereas in Eastern Catholicism and also Eastern Orthodoxy, you typically have domes showing the kingdom of heaven coming down to earth. You'll see icons rather than statue, statues. You will see people bowing rather than genuflecting. Uh, they will make the sign of the cross the other way around. So they'll go to their right shoulder first. 
and they will often hold their hands in such ways that the, their thumb and first two forefingers are grouped together to symbolize the Trinity, and the other two fingers are also grouped together to symbolize the two natures of Christ, or Christ united to his church. And you'll see ad orientum. I think a lot of Latin Rite Catholics, particularly of the more traditional bent, will have gone to parishes where the priests and the people face the same direction. That's also much more common. And virtually everything is sung. The, the readings, the prayers, everything. In the Byzantine Rite, there's typically actually only two things that I actually just said. Um, one of them is the homily, and the other one is a prayer that we make just before Holy Communion. And a different lectionary is used. So in your church calendar will also be a little bit different. Um, you will hear Mary addressed by her Greek term, Theotokos, mean, meaning God-bearer. You won't see kneeling, and that actually goes back to something from the Council of Nicaea, one of the canons that says you don't kneel on a Sunday, because it had the connotation of um, penance, and you don't do that on Sundays. What you're, what you're doing on, on Sundays is standing in the presence of God and worshipping. And communion is also different. Um, in the different rites, it varies. Sometimes it's in tinction. But in the Byzantine church, you have a, a, a common chalice where the body and blood are mixed together and the priest feeds you with a spoon. So you open up your mouth kind of like a baby bird and um, he drops the body and blood into your mouth. And even small children receive. So my son and daughter have both been baptized, chrismated, which is confirmation, and received their first Holy Communion in their first few weeks of life. Okay. And so periodically we take a trip to Minneapolis so that they can receive communion as full members of the church. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. Is there any connection with Eastern Orthodoxy and Byzantine? I mean, obviously the Greek part it would be mm -hmm. you know, the most basic, but then <laughs> say with icons or anything else? It's practically indistinguishable, uh, at least to most people. Okay. I've had Eastern Orthodox friends that I've yeah. brought to my Byzantine church when I was in San Diego, and they said, this is identical to what we do. The only difference is, is that you guys pray for the Pope and we pay for our patriarch. Uh, there's a common um, patrimony of both. Yep. It's just a question of that communion with the Pope. And so with the Eastern churches, some of them never split from the Pope and some of them split and then later reconciled. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in, in Byzantine Catholic churches, if you go to the bookstore, you'll actually see most of the books will be Eastern Orthodox. They'll be by Eastern Orthodox writers. And the spirituality, um, the method of, of worship and life and prayer is, like I say, is practically indistinguishable. Yeah. And you, did you grow up in the UK? I did. And I, and I grew up Latin, right? Okay. So I, I grew up going to a regular Novus Ordo parish. And it was actually when I was living in London in my mid-20s. I had lots of Protestant friends because I'd spent uh, quite some time in Protestantism. And so I had Protestant friends who would invite me to their churches. And I always found it intriguing going to their churches and looking at what their liturgy, even if they didn't call it liturgy, what they did on Sundays, what it said about how they understood God, their relationship with him and their relationship with each other. But of course, I wouldn't be able to receive communion if they had that. And one, one, one Sunday, I remember just this vague thought in my head that there was another part of the Catholic Church that I knew looked different from how I was used to it, but that it was still fully Catholic. And so I did some vague Googling and eventually discovered that what my brain was trying to tell me was about the Eastern rites of the church. Yeah. And so since I was living in London, you had a lot of them because, you know, a, a, a lot of um, uh, communities from other countries living there. So I got to experience a whole load of the different Eastern rites of the church and just, just fell in love with it. And then when I moved to the States, I didn't even think about looking for them here 
but uh, I had been leading the music in a life teen parish and uh, I was let out for the vacation because the, the kids weren't meeting because they were on school vacation. And so I then suddenly thought, oh, I wonder if they have that here. And that was when I found Holy Angels in San Diego, walked in and just just fell in love with, with it all over again. And yeah. both in San Diego and when I moved to Seattle for a couple of years, uh, I exclusively attended Byzantine parishes just because I loved it so much. Yeah. And now my wife and I live in uh, Wisconsin, quite away from most Byzantine churches. So we, ha we have to make special trips yeah. at least once each quarter to go and worship in the Byzantine style. That's yeah, I'm, I'm Midwest as well in Ohio. And yeah, there's not many that that's, you know, probably the main reason why I'm pretty unfamiliar with it is just like, I never even really heard of it until <laughs> much later in my life. I would have never known that when I was a, a kid growing up. All right. When that's one of the, that kind of ties in here with uh, the C.S. Lewis stuff is uh, he's so accessible and so widely, you know, distributed amongst mm -hmm. the, the three main branches if we just use that, you know, simplistic distinction there. And uh, so that's, that's cool that we can, you know, we can all have this, this common ground. Um, you know, and obviously we're all mere Christians first and foremost. And Lewis is, is great at being able to, to reach all these different sects. So I know uh, for you, the Great Divorce is the one and only best. <laughs> yes, Lewis book. I, I've heard that uh, as a issue of tension sometimes. You know. <laughs> yes, I have two co-hosts, Matt and uh, Andrew, who who joined us in season four. And Andrew is an Episcopal priest, and he is under the impression that Till We Have Faces is Lewis's best work because, as Lewis said himself, it is far and away my best book. Um, yeah. I. I beg to differ. I, I I think the Great Divorce is is where he he really hits the perfection of all of his wonderful ideas communicated in a winsome and very accessible way. Yeah, yeah. So to begin with the Great Divorce, how about just a brief overview of kind of what the storyline is? Well, it's really Lewis's own version of the Divine Comedy. In the Divine Comedy, Dante Alighieri he is taken on a tour of uh, hell, heaven, and purgatory. He's guided by uh, Virgil and Beatrice, and he basically sees sees the the life in the hereafter. And Lewis does the same thing. And actually, Tolkien has something very similar in Leaf by Niggle. Yeah. But in Lewis's story, it begins at a bus stop in a sprawling grey town at dusk, and you start seeing that this is a very drab and dreary place. And there's, there's lots of bickering and fighting at this bus stop. But eventually this magnificent bus arrives and people fight to get on. They then leave to, to this other place. And we later find out that the great town they just left, it's hell or it's purgatory. It depends whether you stay there. If you stay there, it's hell. If you leave, then it's purgatory. And they travel to what we later find out is the foothills of heaven. They arrive just before the dawn and it's lush and it's beautiful and there are these mountains in the distance. And it's at this point the protagonist, he's never named so we just assume that this is Lewis on this journey. He then looks around the bus as, they, as they've arrived and he sees that all of his fellow passengers and even himself, they're, they're ghost-like in comparison to the real substantial nature of the land that they've arrived in. They are but ghosts in comparison. He describes them as like dirt on a window pane. You know, you can either notice it or not. The land where they where they arrive, um, it's full of light, and everything is so real and substantial that it actually even hurts to walk on the grass. 
The grass doesn't bend under their feet um, because they're so ghost-like. He, he even tries picking up a little flower and finds that it weighs so much just because they've come to the land where things are truly real. It's, it's, it's not shadowy anymore. And at that point, some figures start coming down from the mountains. Lewis describes them as bright spirits and in other places as solid people. And they come and meet the people who have arrived on the bus. And their job is to try and convince them to journey with them back up into the mountains. And the bulk of the book is a series of vignettes where we see interactions between the different ghosts and the, the, the saints, the bright spirits, the solid people who have come down to try and convince them to come up further up and further in, uh, up towards the mountains. And it, honestly, most of the time, it doesn't go very well. <laughs> Many times, the, the ghosts, they, they want to go back to the bus. They want to go back to the Grey Town. This is what they're choosing rather than carrying on into the, into the mountains of, of heaven. And I, since you've been going through the abolition of man, you can see a lot of parallels between the two. Um, and actually, Owen Barfield himself, he said that some, uh, somehow what Lewis thought about everything was secretly present in what he said about anything. So you see a lot of yeah. the Lewisian ideas that you've covered in The Abolition of Man making their way into The Great Divorce, which is really why I think it's his best book, because you, you see a real synthesis of all of these different ideas that in these ghosts, you, you see how they have, uh, have not followed the towel. You, you've, you see the urban blockheads, you see the trousered apes, you see what a distorted Tao or Dao, however you prefer to pronounce it, you can see how a distorted Dao leads to a distorted person and a distorted love. That's one of the other themes of The Great Divorce. You see how people love the wrong things and how they, how they prefer their twisted view of reality to reality itself. There's a line that happens later on, and for me, this just sums up the entire book. Lewis has a guide in George MacDonald, who was a Christian writer who he really loved. And so in this story, George MacDonald comes down to meet him and George says, there's always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There's always something they prefer to joy, that is, to reality. And so you, you see this exchange. You see what a, a distorted view of the world, what not following the Tao, you see what that results in. And it results in people rejecting heaven and favoring hell instead. Yeah. And also, like yeah. the abolition, there's a scene with the waterfall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He loved waterfalls too, dentists. You know. yeah. Oh, yes. Dentists and mathematics. They're always his examples. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, plenty of stuff in there that you said. Uh, one thing, George MacDonald, he's essentially the Virgil, you know, of, mm -hmm. of the great force. And George uh, MacDonald was the guy who famously baptized Lewis's imagination, as Lewis famously said, with uh, Fantasties. Yeah. So that that's a, a key, key figure, which changed essentially Lewis's trajectory of his atheist to becoming a, a theist and then ultimately a, a Christian. And with Dante, Lewis seems to have been somebody who uh, was himself a medievalist, if we you know want to call him that, and mm -hmm. loved Dante's divine comedy. And it might strike some people as odd, Lewis being himself within that Protestant tradition, yet somebody who affirmed purgatory and uh you know so much of the the great divorce actually is about that concept of you know what exactly is purgatory and actually letters to malcolm you know he really describes exactly like what he he gets the core of the doctrine you could say you know and and says what this is what it is and why i think it's true and it 
it boils down to the idea of it's us wanting via our own will to be cleansed before having a seat at God's table. Yeah, you know, it's kind of the, the image he gives. Yeah. So that's just a, a very interesting thing that himself, even though not being a Catholic, was fully on board with this idea of purgatory. And when I, as uh, somebody who is also within that Protestant tradition, thinks about it, I'm like, it makes sense to me that, you know, we would want to be cleansed in order to have communion with God. And so it's a, I appreciate Lewis's honesty and willingness to to step outside of something that would have been, uh, you know, looked down upon within his own tradition. Uh, he does that in more ways than just one, but purgatory is a great example. Yeah. Yeah, I think he just got the logic of it. And I, I would personally argue that every Christian really believes in purgatory. It's just a question of details, really. Because I think everybody recognizes that we're not fully sanctified in this life. Uh, yet scripture says that nothing unclean can enter heaven. And so clearly something has to happen. Our attachment to sin has to be, has to be fixed up. Uh, our wounds have to be healed um, prior to entering into the presence of God. One thing I would warn people, though, in regards to the great divorce is don't try and take everything he says literally. I always encourage everyone to read the preface very carefully. Lewis did believe in purgatory, but in the preface he, he writes this, I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. It has, of course, or I intended it to have, a moral, but the transmortal conditions are solely an imaginative supposal. Yep. He's asking a what if. What if the souls in hell could go and visit heaven? Would they want to stay? And he, he goes on to say, they are not even a guess or a speculation as at what may actually await us. The last thing I wish to arouse is factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to dive into his purgatory defense, the letter to Malcolm, I think, is probably the one where he... Is there anywhere Absolutely. else that you know of that he does it a little more specifically? He, he mentions it in a few of his letters, but letters to Malcolm is, is where I think he, he gives his most full defense of the doctrine. And he gives a, a wonderful example of somebody that uh, is, arrives at heaven's shores with tattered clothes and smelly breath and covered in muck, and he's invited in, and the, the, the soul says, I'd actually prefer to be cleaned first. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. Uh, Please, sir, let me wash up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So along with the uh, preface there you're talking about, that's that takes me into something I wanted to talk to you about too. Right at the start there, you know, first the title, The Great Divorce. Mm -hmm. That might strike some people as, oh, wait, the divorce? Why is the divorce <laughs> great? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, divorce is contrary to what we believe as Christians. So what's going on here? And, uh, you know, it, it's reference to that title from Blake, William Blake, the romantic poet of, you know, this marriage between heaven and hell. And uh, Lewis himself was somebody who was very captured by the Romantic poets, but still at a distance was able to see the faults when there was faults to be had. And actually his uh, Pilgrim's Regress, I think, is this great story where you can see, you know, if you imagine the, the North in this in the story where he's traveling along this road, and the North would be the, the rationalist of the Enlightenment, we could say, in a simplistic mm -hmm. manner. And then the South would be the essentially the romantics response to the rationalist in a way that was too far it was it was a more of a reaction than a response it was to go too far and you see this conflict you know between, between the hyper rationalism and the hyper emotionalism or however you want to phrase it 
and Blake in a marriage between uh, heaven and hell, as best as we can understand it, uh, you know, as Lewis himself <laughs> says, yeah, um, is he's a good example of this going too far on the romantic side. And then Lewis is divorcing heaven and hell. Uh, so that's a key thing to, to kind of understand. Uh, Lewis himself is a great example of how we don't want to be too taken up with this emotivism and, you know, think that, oh, everybody's okay. And it's all, you know, everyone's going to be saved in the end. And, uh, you know, he can flesh this out for us. So do you, do you know uh, Blake's work any better than, than me or Lewis, I guess? And can you help work us through that? Possibly marginally, but not by much. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned the Pilgrim's Regress there. I haven't studied it in much depth at all, but it does strike me that the map that he walks through, as you say, in the north, it's all rational. Well, what's the north part of the human body? It's the head. And in the in the southern part, it's, it's the much more emotive. Well, there you have the other part of the body that he mentions in The Abolition of Man. And so he has to walk a very fine line between the two. They have to be mediated down the middle. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if he had that tucked away at the back of his head as he was uh, drawing out the geography of, of the journey. But yeah, William Blake, he was a poet. You mentioned that. He was also a painter and a printmaker. And he lived end of the 18th century, start of the 19th century. And the funny thing is he was ignored for most of his life. Uh, but now he is considered this seminal figure in both poetry and r romanticism, both in the, the, I say, the visual arts and also uh, the poetry. And <laughs> he said, as far as we understand, and, and that is just perfect, because I've tried to read The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and I'm still not quite sure what he was saying. And Lewis actually says something in, like that in the preface. He says, um, Blake wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. If I have written of its divorce, this is not because I think myself a fit antagonist for so great a genius, nor even because I feel at all sure that I know what he meant. Yes, you and me both, Jack. You and me both. The the, the work is it's written in the style of like a biblical prophecy, but you've got Blake's own ideas stuffed in there, which are they're very revolutionary, uh, and it's a very romantic spirit. The work itself was actually printed on uh, sheets from etched plates. And so they had poetry and prose and illustrations. So this was the multimedia presentation of the era. And I would say that the, the, the two chief things that, I, that I've got out of The Marriage of Heaven and Hell is that Blake wants to say that they're states of mind. Um, he really sets up for something that the other romantics are going to pick up on, and that's some sympathy for the devil, uh, that Satan is seen as this heroic character. And, and this is all part of the... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is a, a huge, it's a Paradise Lost. Lewis wrote the preface to Paradise Lost, so people know. And um, there was a big romantic swing where essentially they were then celebrating Satan as the hero. And Lewis is like, you guys are misinterpreting Milton here. That's not mm -hmm. what the, he was saying. You know, what about the whole second half of the book or whatever, you know, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, th that's where that comes from just for our listeners. Yeah, so carry on. And so really what Lewis is responding to there is he's saying that, no, we can't have this marriage. We can't have both. He says that our attempt to marry heaven and hell is, is constant. It's, it's perennial. What we want things to be is so that we actually never have to have a complete either or. 
that we can always turn our pet sins, our own twisted desires, that we can somehow embrace everything. In the preface, he says, granted skill and patience and above all time enough, some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found. That mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without our being called for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. So he's saying that we have to convert at some point. We have to ultimately say no to sin and yes to God. We can't sort of bring our, our sins and our sinful inclinations and our sinful desires and our sinful souvenirs along for the ride. We come back to the line from McDonald's that I gave earlier, that they, they insist on keeping hell, even if it means that they don't see heaven. We can't retain our hellish souvenirs if we want to be in the presence of God. Yeah, yeah. And you touched on this idea earlier, and uh, this is a, such a prominent aspect of so much of what Lewis wrote, the Ordo Amorous, the rightly mm -hmm. ordered loves from Augustine. And that features throughout not only the great divorce, but I mean, that is kind of the core of the abolition of man too. Mm -hmm. And the four loves. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's in so many books yeah, in particular with abolition of man, you know, he, he constantly uses this phrase of ordinate affections, just sentiments and similar phrases. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, they, the idea is there is a right way to be and it is up to us then to order ourselves in accord with the Tao or natural law, you know, and uh, the great divorce shows so many characters in there with those vignettes, like you're talking about, they cannot get themselves to accept the Tao, the natural law. They cannot get their own will on board with God's will. And there's that great, that great uh, line where it's, you know, instead of, um, you know, God's will, I'm going to do my will. And, What's it say? Uh, is it McDonald who, who says it? Mm -hmm. He says, in the end, either you say to God, thy will be done, or God is going to say to you, thy will be done. Yeah. So he says, everybody gets what they want in the end. And he says, all that are in hell, choose it. And without a self-choice, there could be no hell. Yeah. But he does reassure us that no soul that's seriously and constantly desiring joy will ever miss it. He says, those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. But it's this, it's this idea that in the end, we get what we have asked for, God or not God. Yeah. And that, uh, that issue of like your just desserts, that's something that, especially in Lewis's essays, so many of his essays, he's writing about uh, the issue that he was specifically tackling was this idea of, you know, are we to have justice based off of retributive justice or are we to have this corrective model of justice. And, and he was like, this is absolutely just totally destructive if we go down this path of corrective justice, uh, because now it's then in the hands of whoever is setting themselves up as the correctors, you know, and we will now make you what uh, we want infallibly and we'll bring it about, you know. Uh, and the, the uh, novel that's adjacent to Abolition of Man, That Hideous Strength, which would, which would be my favorite of the Lewis novels. <laughs> I'll allow it. You're wrong, but I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah. But mostly it's, it's simply because I, I know abolition um, so well that then I get to read that and it's like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is so great to carry out what was more complicated in abolition of man. Mm. But, but you see that, that principle carried forth where this rejection of 
the Dow, God's natural law, getting our just desserts based off of that. And instead, man steps in and takes that place. And we will make, you know, we will correct you. It's just a (laughs) correction needs made and we will correct you based off of what we want and uh, how devastating and destructive that is. And in the great divorce, we see this just robust defense through this this imaginative supposal, which I want to talk to a bit a bit about with you. Uh, but we see this defendant of there is a just desert, and ultimately it will be your will that determines what that just desert is. And this this corrective, you know, nonsense. That's not justice at all. That's just a way for tyranny, really. Yeah, and you read about that in his essay, The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment. But yeah, I, I, once again, all of Lewis's ideas, they keep popping up in all of his books. So when, when, I, when I think of this, I think of the line in Abolition where it says, um, the, the, you know, the, this idea that you would hang on to your hellish souvenirs rather than accept heaven. Well, that's the rebellion of the new ideologies against the Tao is a rebellion of the branches against the tree. If the rebels could succeed, they would find that they'd destroy themselves. Yeah, yep. We just covered that in, uh, I've been this last episode. Mm-hmm. I, I don't yeah. know. Maybe it was this one, whatever it was, it's recently. Yeah. So the imaginative supposal, I, I was thinking, I was like, man, of all Lewis's fictional works, uh, aside from, say, his true poetry that he did, especially like, you know, the earlier poetry when he was really trying to be a poet, you have uh, Till We Have Faces, which I think he would just describe it as a myth that he's just reworking. And then you've got Pilgrim's Regress, which I think he would say that's that's an allegory. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got Great Divorce, which is clearly the imaginative supposal. Narnia is all clearly an imaginative supposal. Is Do you think that the our Ransom Trilogy and then Screwtape Letters, Letters to Malcolm, would you think that those are also imaginative supposals? Would he be okay with that? I think you could certainly couch each of them as that. An imaginative supposal is a really what if. What if we could read the devil's correspondence? What would it say? Yeah. I, I would actually say quite a lot of his stuff defies a neat genre categorization. It very often bridges bridges mul- multiple uh, genres. Yeah. So you could also regard, say, Screwtape Letters as satire. Yeah. Psychological examinations. The, 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 but I, I do think you're onto something. I think at the heart of, of Lewis's use of fiction is asking a what-if question and then letting it play out. So with the Ransom Trilogy, each of the books are quite different. But Out of the Silent Planet, which we've just finished on Pints with Jack, is asking the question, what would life in other worlds, intelligent life, Hanau life, if that we found life in other worlds, what would that mean for us, both in our understandings of ourselves and in our understanding of spiritual things? In these stories, he's letting that play out. And for most of Lewis's books, you, you mentioned the companion to The Abolition of Man is that hideous strength. That's actually true for most of Lewis's works. For pretty much anything that's fictional that he's done, you'll either find another book of prose or an essay where he addresses the same topic, but just directly. Yeah. With that hideous strength, he oddly actually puts it out there in the preface of saying, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing this. Yeah, because I think that's might be the only one where he's really that honest about like, this is exactly what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But but if you if you look through his corpus, you will find some very natural pairings. So we mentioned Till We Have Faces. That's probably best paired with The Four Loves because Till We Have Faces is an examination of love and how it can be twisted and go wrong. 
And that's really what he spends most of the four loves doing, talking about how our natural loves need to be subordinated to divine love, otherwise they will go bad. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, let's see, the that hideous strength, I know he says that that's a, what, a, a fairy tale for grown-ups or something mm-hmm. like that is how it's phrased, yeah. yeah. And so, like, I, I get that, you know, it, it could be described as a fairy tale, but I think it also, the maybe the more broader term would be imaginative supposal, uh, but a fairy tale would fit with within that i would say yeah it, it does seem to be a a very common i guess a uh, style of his a new genre perhaps that he uh, instantiated i would say it's definitely a strategy so yeah after out of the silent planet was released he wrote a letter to sister penelope uh, an anglican nun friend of his and he commented that out of all of the reviews i think it was something like 90 it was it was a large number he said only two reviewers noticed that i was saying anything regarding theology and philosophy and he says i think we've now finally found a way to teach the world (laughs) to reintroduce the gospel without the sunday school associations you actually have somebody engage with the story put on the christian worldview without actually realizing it he says we can now sneak past watchful dragons by communicating uh, through he calls it romance we would say maybe adventure fiction uh, and that is something that he then just consistently does in in his fictional work, that he has some ideas that he's exploring, but he's doing it in a very non-confrontational way by setting it on Mars, on Venus, even sometimes on Earth. But he he's he's giving giving people a, a different world uh, that they can enter, and so they can look around the Christian faith. In experiment in criticism, he talks about my own eyes are not enough for me. I must see through the eyes of others. And that's what he does in his fictional books. He allows people to put on a pair of spectacles of, of Lewis's own worldview and to be able to look through it and experience it and engage with someone's imagination. Yeah. And then in his other works, he engages, engages our rationality by yeah. addressing these topics more head on. Yeah. And there, that's the uh, Pilgrim's Regress. Again, if, if we're talking about the North-South thing, you know, loosely we could say imagination is with the emotional, the South there. And then mm-hmm. reason is up there with the, the rational. And of course, he has that famous line from Blue Spells and Flowering Spheres, that essay from like the 30s, I think it was. And mm-hmm. he says that imagination is the organ of meaning, reason is the organ of truth. Yep. So you see that imaginative uh, you know, aspect carried out in these fictional stories that if you just enter them and allow your imagination you know, to, to go wild in those stories. I think there's a lot that can be learned by reading things like that, uh, that capture the imagination that we, we truly, you know, are imaginative beings and we learn a lot through story. You know, and there's a, probably a reason that the Bible is mostly a story, you know, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of stories. So yeah, it, it, he was a master at doing that. And it's something that Screwtape tries to do as well. In one of the Screwtape letters, he speaks about your man being a series of concentric circles with imagination, intellect, and will. And he says, you want to get all the virtues out into his, ma- in his imagination and all the vices as close to his will as possible. It's a very consistent model that he uses throughout his work. Yeah. And just, just seeing the, the, total, the totality of the human person, that all of these things need to be engaged if we're to have a meaningful change of life. And that was largely influenced by Barfield, if I'm remembering correctly 
I, I, th I think Barfield has a lot to a lot to answer for in this regard. Um, in their great war and their philosophical discussions, a lot of it revolved around the meaning and place of imagination and what what it can and cannot tell us. Yeah. But I also think he's also digging back to his classics training. When you go into the Greek philosophers, they they also spent a lot of time thinking about what is it that makes a person and uh, uh, the various constituent parts. And you even see that in the abolition of man, you know, these 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 three parts of man which need to be integrated. This was something that Plato and Aristotle and Socrates also talked about. Yeah, and Plato himself, at least the only things we have, they're all dialogue. They're all essentially dramas. Mm -hmm. um, you could say that Plato was at his most philosophical when he wrote these dramas. And likewise, Lewis, who is very much uh, influenced by Plato, he was also perhaps at his most philosophical in writing his imaginative supposals. In the, in the Great Divorce, there was this part, and I don't know what your favorite part is, but this is one of my favorite parts, and I thought I'd run this past you. Uh, it's when uh, we have that, that scene where uh, the lizard is on the shoulder, you know, and then you end up having this transformation of this individual. And then this is kind of contrasted with, uh, was it the, the mother and her improper loves that she had the disordered loves, you could say. Mm -hmm. And there's this line here. This is, this, so this would be George MacDonald where he says, it's a weapon on the other side. It leaps quicker than light from the highest place to the lowest to bring healing and joy. And talking about pity, mm -hmm. whatever the cost to itself. It changes darkness into light and evil into good, but it will not, at the cunning tears of hell, impose on good the tyranny of evil. Every disease that submits to a cure shall be cured, but we will not call blue yellow to please those who insist on having, or on still having, jaundice, nor make a midden of the world's garden for the sake of some who cannot abide the smell of roses." And when I read that, I, I reread this, you know, recently before having you on, I was like, that is it so fitting with the abolition of man, because it's, it's this idea of recognizing there is an objective value structure to the world. And we're not going to get on board with this idea of trying to step outside of the Tao. Mm -hmm. uh, it just struck me as, man, what, what a great example, a great illustration of that idea of what it looks like to step outside the Tao. It looks like calling a color something that it's not. Yeah. In fact, he even uses something like that in uh, Abolition of Man, where he says that man cannot in invent a primary color. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just thought of that just now, but yeah. Yeah, they, they have to st steal from the Tao instead. I, I do think those those two choices you made are absolutely spot on. I think this this shows the real contrast, because with the mother... She wants to see her son, and it, 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 it's the one that really pulls at your heartstrings because, you know, we all have mothers, and no matter how bad your relationship is with your mother, there is, there is still something that, that, that draws you back because this is the person that carried you, this is the person that suckled you, this is the person that raised you most of the time. And yet we see her love for her child become demonic. We see that her love for her child becomes twisted and distorted. She, she wants her son more than she wants God. And the, the solid person, the, the saint who comes down to try and reason with her, is just trying to get her to open up her heart to something other than just her son. And after Lewis and MacDonald have seen this scene, and they, they sneak away, MacDonald says, I don't know how that affair is going to end. 
But he says, but it may well be that at this moment she's demanding to have her son down with her in hell. And he says that kind is sometimes perfectly ready to plunge the soul they say they love into endless misery if only they can in some fashion possess it. And you see that as a common theme among quite a few of the ghosts. They want to possess and they want to control. And that's perfectly contrasted with the, the man with the lizard on his shoulder. We're told that this is a red lizard that represents his lust. And the dialogue is kind of funny because he's with an angel and the angel just keeps asking him, may I kill it? Yeah. And he keeps making every excuse there is under the sun. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Oh, now, now wouldn't be a good time. Oh, I need to get a doctor's note. It's like, oh, sh shouldn't we just do it gradually? I think that would be the better way. Basically, every single excuse that we make to ourselves and others when we're being challenged to give up something that is drawing us away from God. And the angel just asks him repeatedly, may I kill it? The invitation, the offer is always there, but he keeps saying no until at one point he finally gives in. He says, yes. And then he says, oh, you're burning me. And the angel said, oh, I, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt. I just said it wouldn't kill you. So the man with the lizard on his shoulder, he has to submit himself. And the, the, the process of the cure isn't painless. Just like Eustace in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when he's uh, turned into a dragon and he has to roll over and Aslan has to undress him by scraping off all of these scales, scraping off his skin. It's not painless, uh, but he has to submit. He has to submit himself to this treatment. But it's then what happens afterwards when you see that it was worth it. Uh, and in the case of the man with the lizard, you see that the lizard is ripped off and its back is snapped. But you then see that it then starts transforming itself into this magnificent steed, the stallion. And the, the ghost that had this lizard, he now turns into something a little less than a god, this beautiful man who then leaps, uh, leaps on top of the, the horse and then rushes up into the mountains of heaven. And I think the, the symbolism is, is very appropriate because the very thing that would have kept him out, this sin that he refused to give up, this attachment that he uh, insisted on holding on to, that he thought he needed, when he actually is willing to submit it and have the thing die, that it itself becomes the very means of his entry into heaven. You see that idea expressed in Till We Have Faces, you die before you die. And that's actually a, um, a very similar line that's placed above the entrance to a monastery in Mount Athos. And it's this idea that if you, if you offer something, if you, if you offer everything to God, he is going to raise it up and raise it up much better. Yeah, it's such a great, great part. What's your favorite part of The Great Divorce? Oh, that's tough because th there, are, there are so many. And yeah. may maybe, maybe the lizard is, is, is right up there. Um, but j just for the sake of, of picking another one, uh, I, think, I think Sarah Smith is, is, is possibly another contender for my favorite part. Okay. Because as I said, we spend most of our time with the ghosts and seeing their dysfunction. But with Sarah Smith, we see what grace can do. And the first time I read this book, you read the description of this great lady who is approaching them. And she's surrounded with dancing children and angels and animals. And everybody is so happy to be in her presence. And Lewis's character asks George MacDonald, um, is that... And what he seems to be implying is, is that the Virgin Mary? Because particularly if you're Catholic or Orthodox or Coptic, when you hear of this great, beautiful lady in heaven, that's where your mind goes. But in The Great Divorce, it's not Mary. It is this lady called Sarah Smith, 
somebody that on Earth nobody had ever heard of. Lewis is reminding us that earthly success and heavenly success are not the same thing. They're very, very different. And uh, for those who are more favoured to the Virgin Mary in their Anglican, Catholic and Orthodox churches, if even a lowly nobody saint that nobody ever heard of is this glorious in heaven, what would the mother of God, what would the, the woman who bore Jesus, what, what would her glory be like in heaven? It's the pattern of the Magnificat, those who humble themselves and love others. And in the story, we find out that she loved every, every delivery boy and delivery girl that came to her door, all of the animals that lived around her house. And her love for them is now almost transferred to, to glory in heaven as she herself is honored for the rightly ordered love that she had. And we get to see what a perfected soul could look like. Holiness is very difficult to write in a way that is also attractive. It can too easily come off as sappy and sentimental. You know, there's a reason that Christian movies are very often mocked, uh, because they, they, they don't communicate holiness very well. But I think Lewis really knocks it out of the park here. And I would even say this is, this is probably another good companion piece to the Screwtape Letters, because when Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, he wrote from this demonic point of view where everything is dirt and grit. And he actually tried writing an angelic version. He said, oh, it's too difficult because all of it has to drip with heaven. Uh, but I would suggest that in Sarah Smith of Gulder's Green, Lewis achieves that very, very nicely. We get to see what a soul that, that submits to God can look like, how true and beautiful and real that can be. Yeah, uh, Paralandra might be uh, the area where he tried to mm -hmm. pull out the angelic thing as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you could imagine how hard that would that would be. We're probably much easier at being able to think about sin. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, you mentioned, you know, screw tape, which makes me think uh, it seems like that maybe World War Two period there really produced some of his best or just that flourish like of, of stuff. I'll just pull up the timeline. If you go to our website, pintsforjack.com slash Lewis, yeah. we actually have an interactive timeline and you do see he has these periods where he is incredibly productive and it always seems to be when he's busy. <laughs> so yeah, he produces The Problem of Pain in 1940, The Screwtape Letters in 1942, Preface to Paradise Lost the same year, uh, The Abolition of Man in 43, Paralandra in 43 as well, That Hideous Strength in 45, and The Great Divorce is also in 1945. So, yeah, when he was busy, he just started cranking out books. And it's the same with the Chronicles of Narnia. He basically does one a year. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. That seems like the, <laughs> the dire situation of World War II brought out some of his most prophetic stuff. You know, I, I believe mm -hmm. in, in particular, I, I, well, I think he might have at some point called it one of his most important because of its prophetic nature. And, uh, I mean, it is... I. I look back on it and think this might be the most prophetic work of the 20th century is how I phrase it. And I think it's certainly got a, you know, a right for that title. Yes. Walter Hooper, who was Lewis's secretary at the very end of his life, and he basically became his literary executor. And if we're still reading C.S. Lewis today, Walter Hooper is owed some thanks for that because he kept all of his works in print by basically holding hostage all of the unpublished stuff to publishers, making sure they brought out an old book if they wanted some of the new material as well, thereby keeping him in print and thereby keeping him read. Uh, but Walter Hooper, I do seem to recall him saying that if you want to understand Lewis's thought, you have to understand the abolition of man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is Hooper still alive? No, he, he died um, a couple of years ago. I, I actually met him 
purely by chance. I took my then-girlfriend, now my wife, on a trip to England to meet my family so they could inspect her before I went and bought a ring. And we went to Oxford, but we did it principally to do G.K. Chesterton things because my wife really loves G.K. Chesterton and all of Chesterton's books, his own library, as well as many of his personal effects, were at the oratory in Oxford. And so we spent several hours there looking through all of his stuff, playing with his cane sword and his hat and all of his glasses and seeing all of his little doodles of swords down the down the margins of books he was reading. And then afterwards, we went to mass at the church next door. And while we were there, I saw this old gentleman come in and I whispered to her, I was like, I think that's Walter Hooper. And, and she says, right, I'm going to go get him for you. What do you want? <laughs> uh, but uh, we did exchange a few words at the end. But no, he, he died soon after that. Okay. But the, the debt that we owe him is, is substantial. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You see his name on pretty much every book I pick up of Lewis's. It's in there somewhere. Yeah. With the, mm -hmm. you know, the front pages usually. So are you guys planning with Pints with Jack on doing all of his fictional and like what about his academic stuff? We will get there. Okay. We will get there. I have I've done I've done some back of the napkin calculations and I think I can get through his corpus before I'm dead, assuming that I live a reasonably ish long life. And my wife regularly reminds me that I'm just not allowed to die. Yeah. So our plan is to is to pretty much cover his corpus. There are other podcasts out there, like the Lesson Known Lewis podcast. They are going through his essays, which makes me really happy because there are a lot of them. And uh, at least if they've gone through it, I, I don't feel compelled to do it. But yeah, I'm basically planning on trying to get through all of his corpus. So this uh, coming season, we're going to be looking at his collections of letters. So letters to an American lady, letters to children, his Latin letters, which he wrote to uh, St. Giovanni Calabria. After that, we'll be doing Paralandra. After that, we'll be doing Surprised by Joy. After that, we will either be doing That Hideous Strength. We might have a, a very mini season on the abolition of man beforehand as a primer. But we will just keep going. I have all of the subsequent seasons planned out. So yeah, uh, we will get to his academic stuff when we get to it. But that will certainly be towards the end. Yeah. Since some of that stuff is is a little bit harder. And also, I'm just a little bit scared. There's the <laughs> there's, there's also a reason that we're not doing that hideous strength now. It's like, I, I, I feel like I need to, to have a run up to it. Yeah, yeah. And definitely the academic stuff. I, well, I mean, he wrote in such a way that like uh, the discarded image, I think is a very accessible academic work. Oh yeah, that was one of Lewis's characteristics. He can write basically about anything. Yeah. Um, the only difference is is the amount of homework for the for the subject that he's talking about that you may or may not have to do. Yeah. So preface to Paradise Lost is wonderful, but it does really help if you've read Paradise Lost and know a reasonable amount about Milton. You'll get much more out of it. Uh, and it's it's the same with uh, I actually picked up from our local library for one dollar. I think it was a second American edition of the Oh Hell series, yes. where he writes about English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama. I've I've been working my way through that. It it's very readable. It's still Lewis. It's witty. It's intelligent. Uh, but I do realize that I don't know an awful lot about literature that I should, and that if I did, I would be knowing more about this. So that's 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 my main reason for pushing his academic works later. Yeah. So that I have time to read some of these other books that he's writing about. Yeah. So that when we actually go through them on the show, I can hopefully offer a little bit more context to people who haven't read them yet. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of his academic, the bulk of it really is that medieval period up through like Milton, uh, getting up to like Shakespeare and those guys. So, yeah, it's it's a whole I mean, it was so widely read. 
<laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, how the heck did he read so much so fast? <laughs> but, but it's truly impressive. Well, my co-host Andrew, he he says that if Lewis is an advocate for anything, it's for good reading. Yeah, yeah. What was I just? I was just reading. Oh, I was reading uh, Joel Hex. His um, mm-hmm. let's see, it's the Irrigating Deserts. Ah, yes, one on education. Yep, I was reading that one just because just more uh, you know information for me as I'm doing abolition of man kind of thing, just to help reinforce stuff and maybe pick up something that I hadn't caught on to before, something like that. And he was talking about how students who, you know, had Lewis as a tutor, how they would like do this game where they would, uh, you know, like pull out a particular book and then they would just start reading. And then Lewis would just pick up from there. And he had a whole thing memorized. Like, what? It's, it's really a gift. All right. Well, David, I am very thankful for you and your podcast and coming on talking with me. And any of my listeners, you definitely want to check out Pints with Jack. These guys are pretty much the originals with the C.S. Lewis stuff. And uh, in my, my podcast, uh, you know, I, I'm beginning with Abolition of Man, uh, but I'm going to cover non-Lewis stuff as well. I'm going to... Somebody has to. Yeah. With the name <laughs> Men with Chest, I'm going to get back to a lot of the things that were influential on Lewis himself, uh, the ancient Greeks, and this idea of how we build the chest. Abolition of Man is a good kind of jumping off point for me as like a, a warning of what it looks like to not build the chest and what the chest is. And so we'll we'll be doing other things that aren't just Lewis. But one thing I'm going to be returning to all the time is essays. Mm-hmm. But if you want to hear, you know, any of Lewis's works, uh, you know, Mere Christianity and um, then you guys did Great Divorce screw tape letters till we have faces yeah. the four loves and out of the silent planet yeah so you can check out pints with jack these guys are awesome and uh yeah thanks for coming on oh you're very welcome and i would just like to end end with one thing about the great divorce at the beginning i i cautioned people about trying to read too much into uh, lewis's idea of what heaven and hell will look like and i would say for me the bottom line of this book is he is using this imaginative supposal to help us see the consequences of the choices that we make. And very often we make insane choices and we make them repeatedly. This for me is, is, the, is the fundamental similarity between the abolition of man and the great divorce, that you get to see the consequences of your choices. And in the abolition of man, he is speaking prophetically about this is, this is the road that we go down when we try and make men without chests. And the great divorce is showing us uh, a very similar vision of what men without chests, the choices that they end up making. And it really is an exhortation to form those just sentiments in the here and now. Many people might describe it as a book about heaven and hell and purgatory. It's really about the here and now and the choices that we make in preparing ourselves for one of those destinations. Yeah, and, and that really is summed up in that line from McDonald's where he says there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. That's, that's the book in a nutshell right there. Yep. Well, thank you, David. You're very welcome. <laughs>